So uh, as I uh, kick off this afternoon, um, I feel like there's something important for me to uh, put mention to, which is a lot of what I'm going to be speaking about today. Um, I can never normally take, I can never really take credit for any sermon, I don't think. <laughs> I feel like the good things are always uh, from God, uh, and the rest is just me being a bit of an idiot. But today especially, I'm actually picking out a lot um, from uh, from a series called For the Life of the World, which we're actually exploring um, as part of the young adult and student group. Um, so some of them will recognize a lot of what I'm going to mention, but it, particularly I just feel like it's important to notice at the beginning, it's not, <laughs> it's not also like I've just kind of taken and adapted uh, and passing on to you, which I think are some very valuable things. Um, and hopefully God will speak through those uh, to you. So we're going to start today in Jeremiah 29, uh, a very well-known, at least parts of this passage particularly well known. So if you want to jump there, we're going to be in the ESV, um, so anyone who has one of the Bibles down here will be slightly confused, but you'll bear with it. And from verse 1, it says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of exile, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elsaphah, the son of Saphiah, or Saphan, and of Jerhiah, and the son of Hilkiah, to whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found in you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. 
and I will bring you back from the place which I sent you in exile. Amen. So, as we kick off and before um, we go too much further, there's something that I have to be honest and bring to your attention just as we start. This particular passage, and especially one very well-known verse in this passage, at times is my source of frustration with how we as the church have a habit of using it and interpreting it. Very powerful words, but it's my go-to example of why context is so important when we come to Scripture. Actually, I'm sure some of you will have been here in the past when I've used Jeremiah 29:11 as an example of why context is so important. A verse I'm sure you will recognize. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How often is that a verse quoted to people individuals in time of struggle or anxiety, or ones that we claim for ourselves when things aren't quite going as we hope, this is one of those verses we love to jump to. Don't worry, we say, in time God will make things work out for you. Things might be tough right now, but do not worry, in just a few moments, in just a little time, these plans will come to fruition. Now, don't mishear me here. I firmly and wholeheartedly believe that God wants to bless each and every one of us, that he loves us as his children. But we cannot just quote such a verse without understanding its context and its place. You see, this is a verse, as hopefully you've picked up from the passage, spoken not to an individual, but to an entire nation. And a nation at that that is about to or is in the process of being taken from their homes, stripped from all that they know, and cast into a world that they do not understand. Many, probably all of the people who originally heard these words, would die in exile. We have to place that context upon this particular verse because we have an option of how we engage with it and how we engage with this section of scripture in general. We can make it very much about ourselves, about taking what we want, saying, making it say what we want for ourselves. And that is a problem I think we often have in the church today. We've made it very much a me-centric faith, about getting and taking what we want, about God being nothing more than a magical genie that does as we desire. But this verse speaks to something so much grander than that. It's a beckoning not for us to look inwards, but to look outwards, that there is something far beyond what we might find ourselves in, that God has plans, purposes that stretch beyond what we can comprehend or imagine. We are left with a choice when we come to a verse such as this, do we look inwards or do we look outwards? And hopefully today, I'm going to explore a little bit of what it might mean to look outwards. Because this verse is placed in a passage which is not just speaking uh, to the people to give them hope, but is also giving them instructions, beckoning them on how they should be in exile, how they should engage with this different culture that they're about to find themselves utterly surrounded by on all sides. How are they meant to be in that place when the world round about them knows nothing of their God? Someone 
much smarter than me, uh, proposed that there are different ways which we as a church tend to engage with the culture around about us, with the world around us. How do we engage with culture as Christians? And there's a suggestion that there's a handful of particular ways that we have a habit of falling back into along the way. First of these, fortification. By fortification, I mean this kind of bunkering down or Christian bubble mentality where you kind of hide away from the west of the world, pretend that the culture out there isn't really there, just let it do its thing, and we'll hide within our nice church walls, protected and safe, not really engaging with it, happy in our little bubbles. I'm sure if you think hard enough, you can think of times as church that you might have done that. I know I definitely have. Hidden away from the world, pretended it's not there, just trying not to engage with it, and focusing in on our nice little Christian huddles. Fortification. Next one, next proposition is domination. That's the all-out war on the culture out there, that it is nothing short of evil on every side, and we should not engage with it other than to fight back, and to fight back with true aggression, with zeal, with passion, with pickets, and anger. I remember I have a friend who, uh, when he was young, he was not allowed to go to the cinema for the very reason that it had the word sin in it. Just this very angry, aggressive stance on all that culture is and all that culture may stand for. That there is a war and the war is with people. The last, assimilation. That bit where you just kind of blur in and become unrecognizable. Can you really tell that this person is actually a follower of Jesus? Can you tell that this church is any different to just your average social club? Merging into the world around us, unrecognizable. Fortification, domination, assimilation. It scares me how much of my engagement as a Christian and much of the things I've been part of fall into one of those particular categories where I might not have realized it at the time, but underlying somewhere is one of those particular notions. And the thing is, all of those come from a similar place, and that is a place of fear. It's this place of fear of what the world out there might do to us as the church, a fear of what might happen, a fear of urgency, like disaster is looming any moment, and so we must respond in these particular manners, fear, 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 when so often in Scripture our call is to faith. It occurs to me as well in this, that as I think through the Gospels, as I think through the life of Jesus, I'm not sure we see any of those three pictures in his ministry at all. He definitely doesn't hide. I mean, there are moments where he might retreat for some calm and some peace, but he is definitely not hiding. He is not just stuck in a little Christian bubble fortified away. He is out there in the middle of the world, in the middle of broken, confused, and lost people. He doesn't aggressively attack them either. There's no points in his ministry where he's trying to dominate the other with aggression and with force. The only hints of anger we ever see in Jesus are towards the religious ones who have got lost somewhere along the way. 
but he also doesn't just assimilate. There's no merging there. It's not just like he, you can't recognize him. You wouldn't even know he was there. The crowds knew. People knew. Countless, countless people knew. They knew when Jesus was coming to their town. They knew who he was. They knew at least a taste of what he stands for. So all this leads me to a question. You see, there are words of Jesus that I'm sure some of you will recognize from John 17 in verse 14, and it says this, I have given them your words, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, for they are not of the world, even as I am. I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. What does it mean for us as Christians to be in the world but not of it? What is our place in this city of Glasgow, in this nation? How are we as Christians to engage and to interact with a culture that knows nothing really anymore of our God? Quite a big question. We'll see how we go as we explore it a little bit today. And that is where I come back to this particular passage from Jeremiah 29. Now, there is many differences from our place and the place of the people of Israel here. We are by no means being kicked off into, ex Israel, into exile for our sins. We are by no means being removed as all the complications that come with the story of exile. But there definitely is at least a handful of parallels here between our position now and their position then. You see, there was a time not so long ago in our nation and all around us where the church was center stage, smack bang in the middle of what it meant to be British. I, I'm told quite often my other church that I, uh, I work for as a youth pastor, I've lost count of the amount of times that people have come up to me and told me of 50 odd years ago when the Sunday school had nearly 300 young people crammed into it with such excitement and glee of a world that it once was. And that's great. It is wonderful for the things that it was, but it's not the reality of where we are now. Another way sometimes of putting it is that there was a time when we lived in what was known as Christendom, but that is not where we are now. Christ is no longer the center of our culture or our society, and as church, we find ourselves on the margin, on the outskirts, on the edge, in a different culture, strangers in a strange land. And from this point of recognition is where I want to go forward. I'm going to show a little clip uh, now, a little video, which will hopefully expand on that notion just a little. This is something that we forget all the time, that we just fail to remember this, that we're strangers in a strange land. Welcome to exile. Welcome, not home. Uh. We're all strangers here, and we're all at points estranged from God, but we're trying to find our way home in accordance with his purpose. It's too abstract. 
<laughs> so that's what I'm interested in. How do we do that? You know what, Evan? The best way to understand exile is to kind of go back to, to the scriptures and what Jeremiah was talking to the children of Israel about in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is the prophet's final instructions for Israel, as well as a promise of restoration, before the Babylonians came to take them into captivity. It was a routing of the land, and Jeremiah 29.7 is the key. And what do you think he told them to do? Seek the welfare of the city into which I've placed you, and in seeking that welfare, you will find your own welfare. Try that one on for size. What this means is the way we evaluate everything, our success, our purpose, all that big picture stuff changes because it's all about the welfare of the places into which we've been placed, those cities. There's a little bit of me that just feels like it's like we're accommodating the city. I can see how it might seem that way, but it wasn't Jeremiah's intention for the children of Israel to sort of just blend in to the Babylonians. Remember what Jeremiah does before they go into exile? He buys a plot of land, gets the deed to it, and he buries the deed. He buries the deed, not because he'll come back and dig it up later, he'll, he'll be dead. But he does know that there will be a return from exile. He has hope in the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And so he's unafraid to enter into that Babylonian captivity because he has faith that God will realize his purposes, even if this present generation is not around to witness it. Huh. Well, that puts some things in perspective. Maybe what God asked of the Israelites in captivity, he's asking of us today. Just like John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and the future coming of the kingdom, so we are pointing to a new reality that's often to the future, even if it's somewhat present right now. We're not the Messiah. We're, we're people that prepare the way. Are we willing to do that hard work? For, for something we might not even see? For something that we might not even ourselves be able to envision. Can we stand in the midst of exile while the whole place seems to burn? Can we allow ourselves to do the humble work of sowing and tilling so that another can come along and reap? Can we be so bold as to declare that that work is preparing the way of the Lord? Well, the key though is like understanding what we mean by the way of the Lord. And that's something I don't. Nice. And so it is in that kind of a place that we come to here today that I want to ask and challenge each and every one of you as you leave here. What would it mean for us as a people to be doing as verse 7 says, to seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you to? What would that mean for us to seek welfare in our everyday places of life and work? 
be it in university or be it in our workplace, be it with our friends or be it with our family, to be ones who seek the things of God in those places, to work humbly with good and honest hearts. Somehow, somewhere along the way, we've created this situation where church is this little island that we come to on a Sunday and a lot of the rest of the week seems almost disconnected. We are called to something so much grander and greater and bigger than all of that. And it's in that place that we find this verse, this famous verse of Jeremiah 29, 11. A call to a nation cast to a place that they do not understand. But God says, do not worry. Do not fear in this, that place. For in that place, I still have plans for you. I still have a future for what I am doing in you and all around you. God has purposes for this city, for this nation, for this world that are far grander than we can begin to comprehend or understand. But we have the honored position of being invited to be part of what he is doing. We might not know it all. We might not understand it all, but we are beckoned to be workers in the field nonetheless, to partake in what he is doing because he has given to us so much so we might look to give. John 3.16, a classic verse if ever there was one. This is just one of those days of classic verses for you. 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Our God loves to give good gifts. He is passionate about each and every one of us, but he is also passionate about each and every one of the people that walk by us on the street in the everyday. That same love shown on us, he wishes to show and offer to all. And we have an invitation. Rather than looking in at ourselves, rather than focusing in on our own, rather than this individualistic perspective that's all about me, we have an invitation to look outward, to look to be part of that process of what God is doing, the salvation work that he is bringing about in the lives of countless others. Someone once suggested to me in the long-standing debate of uh, what exactly it means for us to be made in God's image, that part of that process Part of that thing that it means to be God, to be made in the image of God, is that we are made to be gift givers. Just as he loves to give, so we should look to give and give generously. 1 James 17 speaks of this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. 
He loves to lavish His gifts upon us. He gives to us generously. Everything that we have in honesty really sources from Him. All the good things around us, they are from Him. We can't lay claim to them, but we do have an option of what we do with them. What do we do with the gifts that God has given us? Do we hoard them from our, for ourselves? Do we take them and grasp them as tightly as we possibly, possibly can? Or do we look to share them? As he has shared so much with us, so we look to share with others. One more verse for us today. Matthew 5 from 14 in the Sermon on the Mount. You, these are the words of Jesus, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, a people, li neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're going to watch one more video clip. A single sky lantern, rice paper, a bamboo frame, a bit of wax, a wick, all built from stuff of the earth, but made for fire, made for the heavens made in order to be let go. Who are we to be in exile? I mean, how are we to be in exile? Are we to hide, to fight, to blend in? Or can we, even in the everyday things, learn to see our work as a gift to heaven by working for the life of the world, for the good of this city of exile into which we've been sent? For all our work in this world is made of stuff of the earth our families, our labor, our governments and charities and schools and art forms, all of it takes place here below, but all of it is pointed toward heaven. All of it is in a sense, holy. Imagine if all of us offered our work for the good of the cities around us. How might we be able to change those cities? What would it look like if we only understood that our humble work is a heavenward offering? What would our city of exile look like then? And so in closing, I do invite and encourage you to think what it would mean for you to take your everyday stuff of the earth and consider that an offering to God. Considering, consider our everyday lives the stuff that we do on the everyday, the people that we meet, the interactions that we have, that we would look in all that to recognize what God has given to us and to seek and desire to give back to him and to the world round about us. It is in our very nature, I am convinced, to be gift givers. So what does that mean for you?